Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It is July the 7th. That's a Thursday in the year of our Lord, 2022. And this is going to be a special edition of Herd Tell because we had breaking news overnight into the morning with the time difference. We've been covering the events over in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We had a great discussion on yesterday's Herd Tell program with Albi Amincona about the situation going on. Well, it popped off. Apparently, there are reports now that Boris Johnson will be resigning. He's going to try to just resign from the party and stay on as prime minister until his replacement is named. Now that's up in the air, whether that's going to happen or not, or if they're going to push ahead with trying to force him out. So still a lot of pieces. So we're going to do review. We always talk about accountability on this show. We're going to do a little accountability ourselves. We're going to bring back three of our guests and how we here at Hertel have covered this. So you can listen and hear what we've said what we've got right, what we've got wrong, how we covered it. And now that it's here, because we did some prognostication, how close did we do? Bill Balkett will be on the program. Albie Amankoa will be on the program. And the great Alice Watson-Brown will be on the program. All of these in the last few months as we've covered this story. Listen, make up your own mind, and we'll continue to cover it. Special edition, UK, Boris Johnson version of Her Tell, right after this. Okay, it's been a minute. She hadn't been here since March. Thrilled to have her back, our friend from over in the UK. Alice Watson-Brown has returned to Herdtel. How are you, ma'am? Glad to have you back. I'm really well, thank you. I'm fresh out of university. I finished my degree and uh, just kind of recover from it and have a good summer and just chill out, I think. Yeah, it's got to be a good feeling, doesn't it? Um, While we're on the subject, we talk about uh, people moving around the UK Y'all got yourself a rail strike going on Uh, for the American audience because the culture is different. Mass transit is a much bigger deal in the UK than it is here because we're such a much bigger country, more spread out. Uh, There's two sides to these things. Of course, there's the practical side and there's the political side. Just give us both. Practically, what is this rail strike doing and politically what is happening with it? Well, practically, um, it's stopping millions of people from getting around the country and getting to work and It is basically a protest in the context of 
inflation, cost of living, the fact that public sector workers in the UK haven't received a pay rise in line with this huge, you know, this the inflation crisis, uh, whilst MPs seem to have increased their pay rise around two grand, I think, uh, in the last two years. So there's that kind of inequality. And then politically in the UK, the trade unions uh, say we're going to strike. We want the government to give us what we want. We want more rights for our workers. We want more pay for our workers. And it's it's basically trying to emotionally blackmail the government through, you know, emotive language in the way that, you know, it's workers versus, you know, the the elite and the state. It's this you you can tell what their political motivation is. Um and it's incredibly disruptive. Whether you support it or deny it, no one can say that it's not disruptive. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that people usually if you a rail strike pre-COVID um, would happen, people would be mad taking taxis everywhere. This, everyone would be walking to work, cycling to work. But now you walk through the streets and it's really empty because people have started working from home. And especially it's a really sunny week. People don't want to be going to the office. They'll just say, I'm just going to work from home. I mean, my family have done that. Um, so whether the effect it has is going to be as widespread and as sort of felt by the consumer this time is up for debate. Um, but the popularity of commuting by car and working from home, as I said, could well see passengers now just desert railways and never to return, especially given that you know they're not nationalized in the UK. So prices can really vary um you can pay 200 pounds to get a train to edinburgh in scotland when it's cheaper to fly there via paris it doesn't make sense yeah and of course the backdrop here is interesting and the timing is really interesting because you have you know front page of the times today uk inflation hits 40 year high uh cost of living is dominating the headlines it uh dominated prime minister questions this morning uh, th- this is something that's affecting absolutely everybody. So the question, of course, is, and I'm not against unions as a rule, but uh, strikes are about timing and strikes are about public sentiment. That's really what a strike is for. Everybody's hurting right now. This may not be the time to fly that flag of, hey, we want a little extra when these folks are probably doing just a little bit better than folks in the Midlands or in the outs parts of the country where, number one, this doesn't affect them as much. And number two is they're going to watch it on TV and go, what are they thinking? Everybody's hurting here. Is that fair or is that the common sentiment? I think there's, I think that is definitely one way of looking at it. And in a way you you could be right. However, I think they have timed it possibly quite well because there is, everyone is hurting right now, as you said. And what better way to go up against the government and all this inflation and this, this grievance than to support a very disruptive anti-government protest. And it's not just the rail strikers, the, the rail workers and their, their strike. Teachers are threatening to strike, nurses like nurses. So all across the public sector, there is this, this you know, they want to, there's this impediment between the rulers and the workers. Um, but I suppose one way you could spin this, which a lot of people might disagree, is that this could be good for Prime Minister Johnson because it distracts himself it distracts the press anyway from anything to do with Partygate, anything to do with the latest palaver with his wife, Carrie Johnson, um, anything, any misdemeanors in his office that have really um, undermined uh, opinion of him, 
specifically within the Conservative Party. Um, so maybe this could be a uniting factor for the Conservatives and, you know, take tension away from, you know, the leadership election and the vote of no confidence. It depends on how he handles it. And currently how he's handling it is ostracizing the leader of the opposition. So Sakir Starmer of the Labour Party and the Labour Party um it's the most interesting. I th- I personally think it's the most interesting party in in the UK. They are they used to be the parties of the trade unions. Their leadership elections, their internal structure used to be so heavily dominated by the trade unions uh, and and their leaders and how they could really choose which leader got elected and how much influence they had in in drafting policies. And Sakir Starmer hasn't said anything. He hasn't been clear about it and. The fact that he's not made a clear stand when his MPs are out there on the picket lines really speaks about the state of the Labour Party right now. So Johnson really could use this as it is as to his advantage to present a, you know, united conservative government. Let's talk about those Labour folks for a minute, because um, now I'm an American. So just go real slow and use small words. Explain this to me. Maybe when you put the U in Labour, it changes things. But we had a really interesting scene with the Labor Party where you have Keir Starmer and the leadership and the front bench telling the back bench that they shouldn't be seen on the picket lines. Yeah. Now, I'm not exactly a labor supportive, but if you're the Labor Party and there's a labor strike, that seems like something that would be in your wheel. I, I just kind of shook my head. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. What, what are they doing over there? <laughs> it's a symptom of a wider identity crisis within the Labor Party of this country. And I think social democracy in general, um, obviously, Labour had its great sort of decline and fall um, after, you know, Gordon Brown and, and the, finan- the financial crisis when, you know, I, I don't know if you know the term Keynesian economics um, in. Yeah. So that was sort of the alternative economic model to capitalism or, or, or neoliberalism and Keynesian sort of Keynesianism fell and sort of Tony Blair created this third way and that obviously built a rift between the more traditional Labour supporters and Tony Blair also did try didn't try to incorporate trade union influence into his party he didn't um redact the infamous policies of Mrs Thatcher um regarding their ability to strike and since then they have had no economic policy that can appeal in the way capitalism does. Um, and they've also got this legacy of just being bad with the economy. Um, they always have. They always seem to screw it up. Um, you know, you can't just tax and spend. People understand that now. Um, and there's as well as this now in this age of identity politics, there is this very common question now that I would say more right-wing commentators always ask Labour MPs when they come on air, they go, can you define a woman? And most of them can't answer. Most of them can't answer. And that's driven away a lot of people. It's fundamentally a crisis of identity. This um, writer called Patrick Diamond has written far better than I can explain and in depth on this. So if you want to know more, do do look him up. He's he's very good at that, uh, explaining why. Yeah, it's a uh, universal problem. We're having the same thing over here with our, you know, even inside our Democratic Party, which is our left yeah. party, you have the the center left and then you have the social democratic wing that's yeah. getting more and more progressive. And they <laughs> never the twain will meet, apparently, except when there's an election to be had. It's the same thing. And it's 
more social and economic stuff. It's kind of, it's really interesting how universally, how much of this, since you brought it up, how much of this falls on Keir Starmer? Now, to be fair to the Labor Party, they've bounced back from the from the Corbyn years and the disaster that that was. They did decently well in the recent local elections. They did pretty well, especially in London, places like this. So it's not the house on fire, but at the same time, a lot of people are looking at all the problems Boris Johnson's having and then looking at their own side up front and going, Man, we should we should be doing better than this against what Boris Johnson's doing. Uh, a lot of labor folks have been saying those sorts of things. Is that all far on Keir Starmer or is Boris Johnson just that Teflon? Where's the mix of those two meet? I think Sir Keir Starmer um, hasn't been a force of personality. He hasn't brought a spark or a fire um, to the way he speaks. He keeps missing open goals. There were so many to so many criticisms that he could have weaponized during COVID. Um, and I think that was a big thing for his leadership. People didn't know what he stood for, apart from just saying, oh, this policy is too late or this policy is wrong without actually saying what he would bring to the table. Um, but you could argue that, um, you know, in this sort of economic situation, especially, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, a leader like that, a figurehead, who a motive, you know, po- populist figurehead, could be what Labour would need to win an election. Not that I'm saying, you know, it, it would be it would be good, but I think he weaponized the anti-austerity narrative incredibly well. He mobilized the youth vote incredibly well. Um, and it doesn't look like Starmer really is doing that at the moment. Um, obviously, we're regarding the cost of living and things like that. He's not stirring the masses in the way that Labour can. And um, as we were going back to the identity crisis, this it, it's happened throughout Europe in their social democratic parties as well. And it's it's a trend. It's a very interesting trend to see, you know, since 2008, um, all these, yeah, these social democratic parties in the center left kind of fracturing. And then I, I suppose with you as well, you, you have the Nancy Pelosi's and then you have the AOC's and um, they don't they don't necessarily mesh well. But one of them has to catch up with the other at some point. Yeah. Allison Watson Brown joining us. Okay, so just how big an issue is the cost of living crisis? It's obviously, you know, front page. It's obviously dominating social media. You're there. We're not, though. Turn the noise down on the news and tell us just on a practical level. Is this what everybody in in Britain and the UK is talking about? Is it is this the dominant issue of the time right now for folks over there? Yes, it's gone from changing the way you go to a supermarket, um, you know, I'm a student and notoriously I'm poor, right? And uh, my sort of 25 pound a week food budget was my big thing. Um, and it was my kind of, it was my shop. But now what I would have to do is just kind of fill my basket up with the essentials until I hit my my budget mark. And then I just couldn't buy any more because that was it, Right. And uh, luckily, I'm in a position where, you know, I have a very good home life and my parents were able to help me out a little bit. Um, But there are a lot of people who aren't. However, right now, the weather's hot. People are happy. People can go out and they don't need to worry about heating their homes because families are choosing between putting the heater on and putting meals on the table, which is horrible. And it's not just that it's it's petrol. It's it's going places. And if people can't afford to go out and buy their Starbucks coffee because they have to save money or buy their, you know, buy their pastry on the way to work, that means the workers in those cafes and in those restaurants are losing out as well. 
it's a never ending cycle of, of pretty much just depression. Um, I suppose the news in some way is not, doesn't necessarily over-exaggerate this. It's, it's true. You see it everywhere. And it's, it's the supermarkets, especially, um, are all competing on their, um, you know, get save money on this, on this deal, on that deal. Um, and there was this huge, um, huge story about the government were going to ban two for one or buy one, get one free on ready meals in their tackle to, you know, in their aim to tackle child obesity. And they uh, decided not to go forward with that in the cost of living crisis because, you know, any food's food, right? You need to feed your kids. And yeah, some people don't have a choice. And, um, you know, uh, it, it caused a lot of backlash, but actually, sadly, that's what we've, we, it's come to. Um, but yeah, that, that's from my perspective as a young person. And even more annoyingly, um, I coming from London, you now have to pay like seven pounds 50 for a pint of lager and it doesn't make going out that fun. Yeah. That's 10 bucks for, uh, those of you from Logan that aren't up on the, uh, pound sterling conversion to us yeah. dollars. That's, that's an expensive drink. Uh, Alice Watson Brown, one last political question and we're going to switch gears. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, he, he seems to just, oh, it's over. Oh, it's not over. Oh, it's over. It's not over. Now we had the Lord Gate thing. We've had the ethical stuff. We've had the, the carry stuff over the last week or so. Uh, but he doesn't seem like he's really going to be going anywhere. I know there's a, a little bit of election fatigue. There's no clear cut replacement for him. Those factor in as well. He just keeps squiggling out of these tight spots and pressing on ahead. It, it's kind of remarkable to watch really, isn't it? I think the last point that you said is probably the most influential of the fact why he's still there. There is no real alternative replacement to Boris Johnson. There's no real forefronter. I mean, there are whisperings about MPs, sort of red wall anti-lockdown MPs. So people like Steve Baker, who wanted to leave the lead the COVID recovery group, but their only political message is, you know, I was against lockdown. There's no kind of philosophy about them as there is with Boris Johnson um and I think also Ukraine he's been praised personally by Zelensky for you know our solidarity and our our help for them but he you know I guess he he just keeps seems to keep going and um whilst I've fallen out of love with him many many times um I I I would see no one else who I would vote for um but he doesn't, Boris Johnson is a man who is desperate to be liked. And if he left office, he wouldn't leave office in a crisis. He would leave because he, he wasn't elected, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. One of our UK friends kind of put it this way. Because I asked him how bad it we knew the We knew the Partygate picture was eventually going to show up because that's just the world we live in. And he, he kind of made it half joking, but it turned out too. He's like that, that view of him walking through Kiev outweighed that party gate picture he's like you watch and sure enough it did he was right all right alice watson brown we're going to switch gears we've been banging on the brits a little bit it's her turn she's going to take a shot at our government and specifically the fda we'll talk a little america with our friend alice watson brown over in the uk late of bristol but she's done with them now we'll be right back more her tell right after this
Okay, very excited about this guest. Been wanting to get him on for a few weeks, but he's a very in-demand, busy feller, but we're thrilled to have him with us. Another Young Voices contributor. This is a very smart man. Put him in your information rotation. I've really enjoyed listening to him, and I'm thrilled to talk to him and now call him a friend, Albie Amancona. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for joining us here on Hertel. Andrew, it's good to be here. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, but it's good to be on the show nonetheless. Yeah, as we're recording the afternoon in the U.S., uh, it's evening in London. It's been a very, very busy news day uh, for the U.K., so let's just start right there. We were going to talk about it anyway, but in the last few hours, uh, we've had some breaking news. Again, we're recording this, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, uh, these things may have changed, but we've had some very high-profile resignations. For the American audience who doesn't understand what a chancellor of the Exeter is and these sorts of things, uh, these two gentlemen that resigned, how, who are they, first of all, in the government, and why is that a big deal that's kind of changed the narrative on this a little bit? So the two gentlemen that have resigned, I'll start with the health secretary because that's probably relatively easy for an international audience, but the health secretary is in charge of the NHS and healthcare for England, um, and then also social care as well uh, for England. Uh, so he essentially runs the NHS, was instrumental in the the sort of the, the, the response to COVID and a lot of the COVID regulations and the rules that came in place after Matt Hancock had to stand down last summer for the affair that he had with one of his advisors at the time. Um, so that's Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary. He was actually also previously home secretary and previously the chancellor. Um, and then he stood down, the, Sajid Javid stood down as chancellor and Rishi Sunak took over as chancellor. Um, and the chancellor of the exchequer is essentially the person that is, invo- that is in charge of the treasury, which is in charge of things like taxation, uh, things like government spending, um, and essentially has the purse strings of the United Kingdom. So two very powerful figures over the past two years in charge of the COVID policy um, and the COVID response. Yeah. And for the visual, if you watch Prime Minister questions on Wednesday morning, these the last couple of weeks, these are the two guys that sit right beside Boris Johnson. Uh, That's who they are Uh, to the outside observer. uh, When you're having crises and things like this, these are both ambitious men. Both of them have been named for, you know, a future in politics. What part of this is the current crisis? Because let's be adults here. They're not really learning anything about Boris Johnson. They don't already know. They know this man very intimately over a number of years. They've decided for their own self that they need to step away and separate from him. So how do we parse that out in the visuals of this and also in the politics of it? My personal view is, is that I think it is unlikely that either of these two gentlemen would end up as a, as a real serious contender um, for, for the leadership of the Conservatives, for the leadership of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Sanjay Javid has actually already tried a few times and, and didn't get very far. And Rishi Sunak was involved in quite a serious um, tax scandal earlier on this year with his wife's non-dom status. She was she had a, a, basically a, a tax status that wasn't entirely in the United Kingdom. And because she is the daughter of a billionaire, that was a lot of money that she was saving. And that was seen as, as quite a big blow to any future leadership bids for Rishi Sunak. So I actually do think that these men have done this for moral reasons rather than to further their own careers. And in fact, in his resignation letter, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, acknowledged that this might actually be his last ministerial position. Does that give this heft? Because let's let's go to the guy who does have the job that this is all centered around, Boris Johnson. It's just been a drip, drip, drip this year. He ha- he'll have a high moment and then we have a personal crisis, usually some somewhat self-inflicted, let's just be honest. Um, he'll have a high point 
he'll get out of a scandal and then another scandal comes. Is this going to give more weight than the last one? Because we've done this Boris Johnson resignation watch before. We've done it a few times. The British press is treating this like it's a lot bigger deal and more imminent. You're there, we're not, you tell us. Does it feel like that to you that this is different this time? I would always be hesitant to predict the downfall of Joris Boris Johnson. But this, to me, it does feel different because what all of the other uh, scandals were missing were these big cabinet resignations. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the most important cabinet position after the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary, because of how important the National Health Service is in the United Kingdom, is also a very important cabinet position. To have both of those uh, resignations literally happen within minutes of each other, Andrew, they were announcing both of these resignations, is quite a big blow. But there is nothing constitutionally which forces a Prime Minister to resign uh, after cabinet ministers uh, actually, you know, resign themselves. So what some people are thinking is that he could hold on until the 1922 committee has its elections in a couple of weeks' time and what, what we think might happen with the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of the Conservative Party, is that, that, that it could elect essentially a bunch of rebels to the executive who could change the rules on when leadership, on when votes of confidence rather can happen. Um, and then it could usher in a vote of confidence before Conservative Party conference, conference in October. Yeah, Albie Amonkoto, join us. Break this down for the American audience or the international audience a little bit, though, because this is the parliamentary system. So Boris Johnson is the leader of the party, but he's also a member of the parliament. So in order for him to go, if he's not going to resign on his own, which everybody close to Boris says that's his ultimate nightmare, he does not want to resign in disgrace. If he decides to fight this, there's a lot of process involved here because basically what you're doing is the party is trying to take itself back from him being the leader. This isn't like the American system with the president where, you know, we, we've never removed a president from office through impeachment. We've had him impeached but not convicted. This, there's a lot of dirty uh, processes here that are kind of unclear and kind of uncharted territory, really, if he decides to really fight this, isn't it? Because if he doesn't want to go, it's going to be hard to make him go, isn't it? Yes, it will be hard to make him go, but the Conservative Party has always been ruthless when it's come to getting rid of its leaders. So, so the process that would happen if he chooses not to resign is there is a committee, as I said before, the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of backbench MPs. Now, the back, now that the, the 1922 committee has a, an executive committee, which is in charge of all of the leadership rules in the Conservative Party. Now, at the moment, confidence votes can only happen once every 12 months, and there was a confidence vote just two weeks ago, uh, which would mean under current rules, there cannot be another one for 12 months. But there are elections for the 1922 committee executive coming up. And the rebels essentially want to highlight, to hijack those elections, electing a bunch of MPs who want to change the 1922 committees so that, so that a vote of confidence could happen before the 12 month period and then usher in a new vote as quickly as possible. And then if he were to lose a majority of Conservative MPs support, uh, he would be he would be ousted as prime minister and there would be a leadership election. Yeah. And the other option here that some have been talking about is they think it would be a desperate move. Would Boris Johnson call a general election and take his chances? So this is something which I've heard periodically over the last couple of weeks. It is actually something which the prime minister has denied. It would be a very high risk strategy. Andrew, because the Conservatives aren't doing too well in the polls. They're not doing, it's not sort of a, a, 19, a 1990s level of polling disaster that we saw with Tony Blair and Sir John Major, but we are 
you know, a good seven or 10 points behind Labour in the polls really quite consistently now for a couple of months. So it wouldn't seem to me to be an electorally prudent decision to go to the electorate right now to voters to vote uh, in a general election. We've already had many over, well, since Brexit, really, since 2015. I think there have been three general elections and we, we don't need a fourth one. Yeah, Albie Amankoa joining us from over in the UK. Uh, crisis reveals things. Crisis brings pressure. Pressure reveals fault lines. How much of the political stuff that's going on in Parliament, and, and to be fair here, the Labour uh, Party has not exactly been covering themselves in glory either, although Boris is going to get all the headlines because of this. There, there, it's been kind of a mess the last few weeks. How much of this is the crisis, the cost of living crisis? Every time we talk to our UK friends over there, they're like, oh, no, this is all anybody's talking about is cost of living. There is some international stuff. Northern Ireland's a mess. At, at some point, is there a feeling in England that the government, he, Boris Johnson's line has always been, we're going to get on with it. We're going to get on about the business. He's done that to that point. Does it feel like the government is kind of grinding down and getting under the weight of all this? And with the cost of living crisis, that's just so much more pressure. And that's bringing a lot of these fault lines out. Undoubtedly, the biggest issue facing the British people at the moment is the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got inflation at nine point uh, at nine point one percent. We've got fuel prices spiralling out of control. We've got gas companies not passing on the government fuel duty cut onto consumers. People are really feeling the punch. And to the government's credit, they have actually come out with quite an unprecedented package uh, in support to the British people. A lot of people argue that there's not a necessarily a conservative way to handle a cost of living crisis by essentially handing out money to people. Other people like me would perhaps for tax cuts. But nonetheless, no one can argue that the government isn't at least trying to solve the problem. But all of that, Andrew, is being overshadowed uh, by the way that the Prime Minister and indeed Number 10, supported by the rest of the Cabinet, respond to what can actually be uh, quite simple events that just require a good response from the Prime Minister and a good response from the government. And none of that seems to have been happening. Why is the comms on the small things? And I don't and I'm not meaning small as in um trivial matters because these are serious matters but he does good on brexit he had that wonderful optic of him walking around kiev you know he all he seems to get the big stuff and get in the mainstream of the british people on a lot of that stuff and it's just self-inflicted wounds on all this other stuff like just come out and say the truth about like partygate happened everybody went okay there's going to be a photo come out at some point like everybody kind of felt that one coming you know self-inflicted over and over and over again letting this minister and i don't want to get into the allegations because they still got to vote the process but you know ministers that you know are problematic hang around because you needed the votes and that's the way it looked why is it is it just part of his personality that big outward personality that he just sometimes doesn't handle this small stuff because it, it's almost baffling yeah, this is part and parcel with who Boris Johnson is, isn't it? I wouldn't necessarily describe them as small things. I would probably describe them as things which should be easy to handle. It should not be difficult to handle a situation where an MP is has allegations of sexual assault against them, which are then upheld. It should not be difficult not to promote that person to a position where they're essentially handling the pastoral care of conservative backbench MPs. That should be an easy thing to handle. The Partygate saga should have been, in my opinion, an easy thing to handle. It just required honesty. Um, and what a lot of Boris loyalists will say is he's got all of the big calls right. But when there are so many of these easy things to handle, which are handled abjectly, terribly, 
it piles up and it ends up in a situation like this where we've got two senior cabinet ministers resigning. And I think this all actually stems from the Paston scandal last year. So this has been going on uh, since around October or November time last year. Yeah. Albi Amancona joining us. That's why we have him. He says it way more elegantly than I did and got to the point much better from my bad question. Well done, sir. Appreciate that. Join us on Hard uh, We're going to take it right after this break. Bill Bowkett joining us from the UK, another great Young Voices contributor and a great commentator in his own right over there. Make sure you're following him. One of the things the speculation was that Boris Johnson has somewhat wrote out the trouble he has is because there's not a clear cut successor to him in the conservatives, in the Tories. Uh, Is the same true with Keir Starmer? If he holds to this and he steps down, is there a clear cut successor? Or could we be in a situation come the next general election where both parties are kind of scrambling for leadership at the same time? That's certainly the case. I think, uh, at least in the Tory party, there are several possible contenders to uh, step into number 10 Downing Street. You've got the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who's been centre stage in negotiating um, a way out of the uh, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, um, she's also been integral to making all these post-Brexit trade deals with countries like Australia uh, and New Zealand uh, and, and other countries. Whereas with the, the Labour Party, um, there's a bit more open scope for who to take over. I mean, but the problem there is, is that uh, even, you know, with American listeners, it's the same with British uh, listeners or, or British people as that there's not really any standout figures. Um, I actually looked recently in the most Yugo, uh, most recent Yugo polling into the most popular Labour figures. That's not just uh, MPs. It could also be um, uh, mayors like the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, or former prime ministers like uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. And I think it was only Yvette Cooper, who's the shadow uh, home secretary, that came out as, as the highest current, you know, sitting member of Labour's front bench, and she was seventh. Um, I mean, on top of my head, there's people like Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, who's, you know, a very eloquent speaker, you know, very moderate. Lisa Nandy uh, is the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and she's very tough when it comes to the Ouija Muslims in, in China, uh, and also criticising the government's uh, levelling up strategy um, to, to make Britain more equal, more fairer, more uh, financially prosperous. Um, but the problem there is, is that ask any normal member of the public, you know, to name, I don't know, 10 members of the Labour shadow cabinet, uh, you'd really struggle to probably list half, you know, list four or five. So um, there's definitely people who could take over as summer, but they would also have, you know, an extremely difficult job um, and not only, you know, resonating with the British public, um, but also, you know, creating a, uh, a vision which they see as, as, as uh, moving on from 12 years of Tory rule, um, especially since the Tory party are now moving further left uh, on economics since they've introduced all these tax rises around national insurance and VAT. It's, it's kind of got to raise the question is what the Labour Party actually offering 
uh, nowadays? That would certainly be the question that Sakir Starmer or indeed any future Labour leader will have to answer. It, how much of this is because British politics is like anywhere else. Like you've mentioned, the Tories have been in charge for quite a while. There's got to be just a fatigue factor with some of it just because they've been in power for so long. But like you said, you also have this dynamic of the post-Corbyn Labor Party kind of trying to figure out who they are. And then in these results, there's definitely something to be said. There's a bit of a rural and urban divide, as we would call it in the States, with some of these results. How much of this is, yeah, there's a fatigue, but the Labor Party is still going to have to come with some kind of a cohesive vision here if they're going to take the leadership? Yeah, uh, that's that's totally true. Um, for, for the last at least four years, uh, at least before the pandemic, the, the overarching issue was uh, was Brexit uh, the, and Britain leaving the European Union had that referendum where the majority of the public uh, said that we'd be better off being outside the, the trading bloc, the intergovernmental organisation and the Labour Party uh, under Jeremy Corbyn's reign you know, weren't standing for it during the 2019 general election. They actually had in their manifesto that they would have a, a second referendum uh, on the Brexit deal. So Labour would essentially go to go to the European Union in Belgium, uh, you know, negotiate a deal and then have a referendum where they would campaign against it. Um, and that hurt a lot of voters, especially in their traditional heartlands in the north, uh, and in the Midlands, who you know strongly voted uh, to leave the European Union compared to uh, London and the south of England, um, uh, so that there's that regional issue. But that Brexit is becoming less prevalent. That it might be interconnected to things like you know the cost of living, the price of food, uh, which has been skyrocketing. You know, inflated. The Bank of England projects that inflation is going to be at ten percent uh, at the end of this year. Um, and because of the way in which the Tories have uh, mishandled the economy by, you know, throughout the pandemic and, and now post-pandemic, Labour actually leading the Tories when it comes to trust, uh, at least public polling when it comes to you know, trust in handling and managing public finances. So on the economic side, you know, they do have a strength in there. And I could see come the next general election, um, that they could just simply ask the question to voters, you know, in any, you know, uh, election video or during a debate, has your living standards improved under the Tories? And the vast majority of people would say no. Uh, and that in itself is a winning formula. It's just, could they incorporate that with a strong, you know, message for wider society, for, you know, promoting social liberalism, but also... Um, you know, proving that they are more trustworthy party than Tories who, like I mentioned, have been embroiled in issues around trust, uh, you know, sleaze and sexual assault um, and second jobs. Um, it's going to be, you know, tough ask. And also the Tories have an 80-seat majority uh, in the House of Commons and only once in history has a majority uh, been slashed, you know, that big, um, so it's going to be a mighty trend for the for the Labour Party. Now they're talking about the Tories, Bill Balkett joining us here on Hertel. They're talking a lot of policies here, but we're just kind of looking at it from the outside. You're there, you tell me, because of the COVID policies, because of the adjustments from Brexit, because of their tax policies that you already touched on, because of the NHS policies that they've been working on, fairly or unfairly, however you want to parse it out, they're kind of painted into the corner that they're going to have to fight out of. And I don't think they've got a lot that they can really do here, do they? 
They they have some legroom, I feel. Um, at least when it comes to the economy, they can Boris Johnson should he should he be you know the Conservative Party leader come the next election, which is most likely to be either twenty twenty three or or even twenty twenty four. Then they would say, uh, but we didn't have um, a war uh, and we didn't have a pandemic, you know, in our election manifesto. Um, in that case, uh, and as we saw with the Queen's speech, um, there, there's a lot of red meat policies which are, you know, going to be put through uh, the Houses of Parliament over over the next parliamentary year. We've got uh, a big bill uh, when it comes to um, regulating big tech. We have uh, a very big bill, the National anti Borders Bill, which is supposed to uh, hung on illegal immigration. Um, there's a uh, deal agreed with uh, the Rwandan government to send uh, it, asylum seekers uh, trying to enter the UK and send them to uh, the Central African country. Um, and many of these red meat policies are, are being proposed not only because they were in the Conservative 2019 manifesto and they have to deliver on them, otherwise. Um, they, they're going to lose, you know, a couple, you know, many votes. Um, but it's also being seen and interpreted, at least by um, some politicians, uh, as, as an appeasement from Boris Johnson over uh, distrust within his own Tory ranks, over the way he's handled the economy, the, his um, behaviour during the Partygate scandal, um, and and whether he misled Parliament. Uh, in in the process as well um so when it comes to that uh, next election when it when it does come around this this is the pivotal question is that the tories have been in power for 12 years now and and they've got to ask voters and really appeal to them because there are going to be some who are going to be apathetic uh and many people aren't turning up to doorstep as much as they were, that actually the turnout in the local elections was just over 30%, which is an incredibly low lumber. It's it's half of what a, you normally see at a general election. So so they really have to, the brand of Boris Johnson, uh, along with you know the appeal of conservatism, uh, modern British conservatism, um, has to stick. Otherwise, they're at risk of, uh, of succeeding uh, Subseding to to the Labour Party, which uh, to them would be um, would, would be a, a economic and a social disaster. Because of what transpired before uh, with Brexit, with the changing in power, with Boris Johnson's own rise to power, has it been a blessing or a curse that they've kind of everybody kind of admits like this general election is going to be out in the future? It's going to be at least another year in the future, probably. Is that a blessing or a curse to the Tory Party that's trying to readjust on the fly here? Well, there was one report I saw from uh, Business Insider, actually, um, Kat Needlin, who uh, heard from several Tory sources that potentially the Tories are eyeing up election uh, this year. And the reason they're doing it this year is because they feel that the economy at this moment of time is not getting any better with um, the uh, MPS, as I mentioned, predicting that hike in inflation, uh, hike in interest rates, uh, resultingly as well. That if the if the state of the economy doesn't improve as as they would hope, um, you know, come twelve months time, then then what's the point of holding off for a general election? I mean, 
that there could be the benefit for, for Johnson in um, putting behind some of the more personal uh, Westminster bubble stories, as we like to call them, around sleaze and party gate. Um, because as you're seeing with public uh, opinion, uh, I think in the most recent Salvation poll, uh, it showed still that a majority uh, of the British people want Boris Johnson to resign and that majority see him as a dishonest uh, politician. So that in itself could be an advantage, but then that would give also Labour the chance to make more ground. We've got some really important by-elections uh, for parliamentary seats coming up. We've got the Wakefield by-election, which was caused after Imran Khan, a Tory MP, uh, was suspended uh, for, uh, uh, for sexual harassment. Uh, and then we've got another uh, in, in, in Tiverton and Honiton uh, by uh, Neil Parrish, an MP who was caught watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber. Um, and that in itself will be a test. I mean, local, local uh, elections actually, as we mentioned, uh, have more local factors involved in it. And the thing is, is that parties are able to concentrate all their resources into, uh, into these different uh, marginals and seats uh, to gain the best advantage. Um, but it's a, it's a, but I think the most realistic solution as a uh, date that we can see is probably going to be 2023. Wait till this Metropolitan Police Investigations Parsegate is concluded. Wait until uh, the late, uh, Durham Police finish their conclusion. You know, hopefully the situation in Ukraine improves. Um, wait and see if any of the measures implemented by the Tory, like the uh, energy rebate actually has uh, any impact on people's livelihoods uh, and see where to go from there. Yeah, it makes that Keir Starmer promise even more interesting if that should go down. Uh, Bill Bauke, join us real quick before we have to let you go. A lot of the threads that went through all of these issues, we talked about the economy, the leftover wake of Brexit, things like this, uh, border policy. Those are new spins on a very old problem has risen since the Queen's speech. Northern Ireland is getting messy and it's getting loud. Uh, just real quickly before we have to let you go, what's the, the results of that? How is that going to play? Because, again, an old problem, a little bit of new spin in it with Sinn Féin taking power in the Republic of Ireland. How's that going to play going forward? Yes, we can't forget uh, the other parts of the UK as well. Before we get into Northern Ireland and Wales, uh, Labour increased their share of the vote in Scotland. The Scottish National Party increased their share of the vote. So that in itself is going to raise further questions about the second independence referendum uh, over there. But the, the big story I feel for the entire general election, as you said, is what happened in Northern Ireland, uh, which is Sinn Féin uh, becoming the largest party in Northern Ireland. So actually the first time that a nationalist party uh, is the largest party in the province since Northern Ireland was created uh, over 101 years ago. And there are far-reaching consequences with this, not only because uh, the actually the biggest unionist party who have, remained, have been in power there for you know many a decade, the Democratic Unionist Party are refusing to go into a power share agreement in Northern Ireland because uh, unlike other democracies in the UK where we have a majoritarian system um, where you know parties with the most votes would then um, you know be able to rule or if they 
lack of majority, they would have to be in coalition. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, the different factions, the Unionists and the Nationalist parties, actually have to work together and they have to, the, to reach consensus. Um, but the Democrats and Unionist Party don't want to do it because they see Sinn Féin as historically, you know, the political wing of the uh, IRA. Um, they see that they're going to break up the union. You hear Mary Lou Macdonald, the president of Sinn Féin, wanting a, a border poll uh, you know, within the next five years. And then we've got this issue uh, around the protocol, um, which ultimately the Sinn Féin support, uh, but the DUP don't because it's causing uh, trade barriers uh, between uh, the UK, the, you know, the Great Britain, as we know, or, or mainland Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and we heard today that Liz Truss um, wants to scrap elements of the protocol um, in order to reduce bureaucracy, and that, but also in turn respect the Good Friday Agreement, which is what has preserved peace in Northern Ireland over the last three decades. Um, it's going it, to just because they won the majority doesn't come actually if you combine the different votes from the other parties. Then unionism is still the largest block, uh, at least among voters. Uh, but it's certainly going to put pressure um, on Boris Johnson. It's going to put pressure on the wider union. Uh, and it's going to raise further questions as to uh, Northern Ireland would be better off uh, as part of the United Kingdom uh, or whether it would want to um, unite Ireland uh, for the first time, or, uh, you know, in over a century. Yeah, very interesting times. We're definitely going to have you back again to continue to cover this because uh, it's not going to get less interesting in UK politics. Our friend Bill Balkett over in the UK, my friend. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.